I invite you to uh, take your swords and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, if you need a sword, there's one in front of you. And you'll find our text, Acts chapter 2, on page 910. We are in a series on the minor prophets. We were speaking or looking through Obadiah um, a few weeks ago. And we'll be looking at Joel next week. And we've taken a little detour on purpose these two weeks, last week and this week, to go to the book of Acts. And we're doing that for two reasons. The first reason is this. We really do want to understand how what we're reading about in the, the minor prophets, the smaller books of prophecy in the Old Testament and even the major prophets, we understand what we see in the Old Testament and how it's connected to the events that are recorded in the New Testament, that there is a connection there. That our Bibles are not made up of different books that, you know, where, where Joel has his sayings from God and Isaiah has his sayings from God and Luke is writing, you know, some of the sayings of Jesus and that's what we have, just kind of wisdom literature for us to read. But actually here, there is a connection. And that brings us to the second reason we're looking at Acts as we go through or taking this little detour. And that is this, we really want to understand the whole story of God. Because that's what God is doing. He's writing a story in human history. He's writing his story. And as a result of that, or uh, we're getting to see his redemption. It's often called the Ark of Redemption. He has this plan, this plan of redemption that he's acting out. And we want to see that. But as John has even alluded to in his prayer this morning, this week, the events of this week has made, have made it very difficult for some of us to believe that God is working his plan of redemption. I mean, what we saw even just last Sunday afternoon, the release of a report of significant sexual abuse in a very large denomination in the church here in America. It disturbs us, grieves us. And then on Tuesday, to see that horror, to see that evil of the shooting that took place in Uvalde, and we ask ourselves at times like this, how am I supposed to think about all this? How am I supposed to feel about all this? How do I make sense of all this? And then what am I supposed to do with all of this? And the answers to those questions, those important questions, are really complicated. But I do know this this morning, brothers and sisters. I know that as followers of Christ, we're called to grieve with those who grieve. And I know in all circumstances, and certainly in circumstances when we face these kinds of evil and injustices, when we face this kind of grief and loss, we go to God, we go to the Lord, and we go to his word. And so here we are this morning. This is where God would have us in Acts chapter 2. This was planned weeks and weeks before that we would be here. And I sincerely believe that God has something to teach us this morning. There's a reason we're here at this point. There's a reason this morning that we're going to look closely at this Jesus. So follow along with me as I begin reading. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 22. We read through verse 21 last week and saw the very beginning, the opening introduction of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. I'm going to pick up in the kind of the body of the sermon in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that you did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or will you let your Holy One see corruption? You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are now seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers but the fl- and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this day after a week like this, we know that we need to see Jesus. And so we would ask that you would quicken our minds and and open up our hearts that we might hear what you have to say to us today. Father, we know you in your great love for us desire to speak to us through your word that we might understand the heart of God through the word of God. And so, Heavenly Father, please speak to us. Holy Spirit, please fill this place that Jesus might receive glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine that day after that sermon? The disciples standing around, the 12 apostles, they're sitting there with Peter and he's giving this amazing sermon. They're already amazed at that because like I said last week, Peter is usually putting his foot in his mouth before. Now he's this eloquent preacher up there. And then after that, this group of 120 who had received the Holy Spirit, watch as 3,000 people are saved. 3,000 people that day. Suddenly, there's a big giant megachurch in Jerusalem that God has put together. He's doing this amazing work before their eyes. Think about how that day began. That day began with the Holy Spirit coming upon each of them, coming in them, as we said last week. Not just among them, but actually to dwell in them. 
And then as they, as they powered, empowered by the Holy Spirit, going out and speaking in languages that they had never learned, speaking the mighty works of God in the languages of the people out there, bold enough to walk out and talk to these people that they had never met. And then, of course, some people saying, well, I just think they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. It's what the, Joel, what the prophet Joel said. What you're seeing now is what, what, what he talked about. And then he gets to the end of it. And they see 3,000 people saved. There, between this moment in the morning when they receive the Holy Spirit, the end of the day, when 3,000 people come to know Christ, put their faith in Christ, what happens in between to get from here to there? Well, it's this message that Peter's preaching. And what is this message that the Holy Spirit uses to bring all these people to salvation? It's interesting to note when you read through this, just as we've done, that it's not the teachings of Christ that Peter preaches. He doesn't say, hey, let me tell you what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, on that hillside. Let me tell you all about that. He doesn't do that. Peter doesn't say, hey, let me tell you what Jesus said in the upper room when we were with him at that last supper. Let me tell you all the things that, that Jesus said at that time. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give them the teachings of Christ. Instead, Peter gives them the person of Christ, Christ himself. He said, I want to talk to you about the cross of Christ. I want to talk to you about the resurrection of Christ. I want to talk to you about the exaltation of Christ. Peter, in his sermon, in this moment, in this day of Pentecost, what he does is he says, hey, listen, Jesus is at the very center of God's plan. Jesus is at the very center of the Old Testament prophecies. It's what it's about. Jesus is at the very center of human history. Jesus is at the very center of the church. That's what he's saying. It's Christ himself. And I would ask us this morning, even as we think about that in the big picture scheme of things, is the ark of redemption, thinking about Jesus being at the very center of everything, we have to ask ourselves this morning, don't we, as we sit before God's word, is Jesus at the center of my life? Is he the center of my decisions? Is he the center of of my worship? Is he the center of my affections? Is Jesus the center of my finances? Is, these, is Jesus the center of my relationships? He's the center of everything. Is the center of my life? As we think about that question, join me as we take this journey that Peter brings us along through this sermon to understand this Jesus four times. Four times Peter basically says, three times he literally says this, Jesus. Four times he tells us something about Jesus that is so important. The first is this in verse 22. This Jesus attested by God. Isn't it interesting in verse 22 as he begins his sermon, as he begins to talk about Jesus, he starts with Jesus' humanity, not with Jesus' deity. He says, Jesus, a man. Why does he do that? Why do you do that, Peter? Why do you start there? instead of his deity. Well, it's because of this. He knew that everybody listening to him at that time, they knew Jesus the man. I mean, some of them, having traveled from, from different parts in the Roman Empire, would have heard about Jesus the man from friends and others there in Jerusalem. But certainly any of those who lived in Jerusalem or lived in Israel would have said, oh, I, I know Jesus. I, I actually saw him. I actually heard him teach. I actually saw him perform a miracle. I know this Jesus guy that you're talking about. And then that's why Peter also goes, Jesus, a man attested to you by God through mighty works and wonders. 
Why does he go there? Well, because you, you, you can't deny it. Because all those people there would have either been eyewitnesses to the mighty works and wonders that Jesus did, or they would have heard about it from a close friend. I mean, the reality is the miracles that Jesus performed were historical facts. They actually happened. And as a result of that, what Peter says is, hey, you know about these things. And you can't erase it. It happened. Some of you even saw it happen. But Peter says this stuff is being done through Jesus by God. God is endorsing. God is attesting to something about Jesus. And then Peter basically is saying, are you going to deny God's work? Are you denying God's work? And you see, friends, that, that was the real issue with Jesus. <laughs> they, didn't put Jesus, they didn't put Jesus on a cross because he performed miracles. They didn't put Jesus on a cross even because of his teachings, other than one teaching in particular, and that was this, that he claimed to be God. He says, these works I'm doing, I'm doing because my Father has sent me. And I and my Father are one. That's why Jesus went to a cross, because of blasphemy. So how does that work for us today? I mean, most of you in here would say, well, you know, come on, Todd. Even, you know, even people who are atheists have something nice to say about Jesus, right? I mean, there's nobody who's really upset at Jesus. I mean, we kind of like the things he says. He says some good teachings. I mean, some things we're kind of not sure about. And generally, people imagine that they would like Jesus the man, that, you know, he's a, he, he wants peace and he's loving and he cares for children. And all those things are true. And probably those who aren't atheists or agnostics might even say, well, I believe in a God or a higher power. And, you know, Jesus, probably the teachings of Jesus show us something about God, probably you know, I mean, maybe you could say that for people that want to believe in Jesus, maybe Jesus is one way to this God that we would know, but that there are many ways. And Jesus is, is one of the good ways to God. Friends, that's, that's just not what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not a way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. That's the point that Peter is making. He's the only way. And friends, if Jesus is the only way to God, then Jesus has to be the center of our lives, doesn't he? Has to be. This Jesus attested by God. Peter goes on. This Jesus Delivered and crucified. We see that in verse 23. This Jesus delivered and then also crucified. This, this one verse, verse 23, is just absolutely packed with theology. I mean, in that one sentence, you see right together the sovereignty of God, that he is, that he is orchestrating his plan, that he is in control, and you see right away the responsibility of man. Both of those things are right together in that verse. And Peter begins with this definite plan of God. He says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Christ was delivered to the cross by the plan of God. Why did Peter say that? Why did he start with that? Well, he knew his audience again. He knew he was speaking to, to Jews or those who had converted to Judaism. People that knew the Old Testament prophecies, who knew Joel and Obadiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and they they certainly were waiting for this Messiah they had read 
in those prophecies about the conquering Messiah. They weren't sure about the suffering person that was talked about like in Isaiah, but they, but they liked the conquering Messiah. And what they imagined this conquering Messiah would do would come and conquer their enemies physically there in Israel. What they wanted was a Messiah who would save them politically from the oppression that they were facing by the Romans. What they wanted was a Messiah who would save them economically and take care of all of their physical financial needs. What they wanted was a Messiah who would get rid of the corruption that they felt was in culture and give them the culture that they wanted. That's the Messiah. What they, what they wanted was a Messiah who would make Israel a great nation like they imagined it had been in the past and that everyone around them would see how great this nation was. That's the conquering Messiah that they imagined. So when Peter is talking about Jesus being the Messiah, they don't get it because Jesus, the Messiah can't go to a cross. The Messiah can't, can't uh, experience and go through this shameful death. I mean, if, if, if he was supposed to be the Messiah, well, apparently some random accident of him getting arrested and going to the cross has kind of ruined that. But see, friends, it, it wasn't a random accident. That's what Peter's saying. The cross was not a, a blip on the way to the conquering Christ returning. And there will be a conquering Christ returning. It wasn't a blip on the way. No, it was the plan of God. And it was the plan of God because though Christ will return as a conqueror and be king of the entire world and everyone will know it, it begins in the most important place, and that is that he's got to conquer our hearts. And the only way he can conquer our hearts is through a cross. Because in his great love, he is going to die for us and pay that price. So then Peter says, this is the definite plan of God. And then he looks at them. This is harsh. He looks at this crowd and he says, you killed him and you crucified him. Now there were at least 3,000 people there, but probably more than 3,000 people there because I can't imagine that every single one of them were saved, got saved that day. So let's say there's 5,000, 6,000 people there. Peter looks at all of them and says, you killed Jesus. It's by your hands that he's been crucified. And that seems harsh. I mean, we know that some of them have traveled from around the Roman Empire. So I'm sure some of them were like, no, I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't even there. I wasn't here. I didn't kill him. I mean, what's he talking about? And maybe others say, well, yeah, I mean, I saw it happen, but I wasn't involved in any of the things like that. And maybe some of them were like, no, I, I know I was involved. And others might have said, you know, if I had been in Jerusalem, if I had seen this happen, I probably, I mean, I probably wouldn't do that. I mean, I would, I would never, I would never willingly be a part of killing the Messiah. You have those things in your life, even small things, where you said, hey, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. We will never do that. And then you do it, right? It happens to us, doesn't it? I remember years ago when our kids were little um, and uh, we were very um, self-righteous, arrogant parents of, you know, elementary school kids and uh, we decided, Lynn and I, we will, we will never, we will never have a video player in the car, right? Like that's terrible parenting, right? So we will never do that. And, uh, you know, we're going to go on trips. We go on trips. 
right? We're going to be just this more righteous family because we're just going to have conversations as a family and we want our kids looking out the window and seeing the world and all this stuff. And then came a summer when I had to speak at several different conferences and Lynn was traveling with our three kids by herself and she shows up at one of those conferences that summer and I go to help her unpack the car and I'm like, huh, Lynn, what's this, uh, it seems to be a video player in the car. And she's like, yeah, you, don't, you know what? You don't know what it's like to travel with just three kids by yourself. So. so from there on, we had a video player in the car. Or I remember even uh, looking forward to my, the time when my kids would be in middle school and high school. And, but I knew this, is, you know, I was going to be a responsible dad. I was not going to be like those other dads who got in, over-involved in their kids' sports. Like, that's ridiculous. Who does that? I mean, clearly their priorities are misplaced, getting that involved in their kids' sports. Never going to do that. And then I found myself at an eighth grade football practice. Practice, standing next to five or six other dads. And it hit me, huh, (laughs) my dad would never do this. This is ridiculous. What am I doing at a practice? I'm a little over-involved. But you know what? We even do that with spiritual things sometimes or even our theology. We can look at the Garden of Eden, read from Genesis 3 and go, wow, I would have never done what Adam and Eve did. I mean, why couldn't they get that? It was simple. You can eat and have anything you want in this garden. You can go anywhere, just not that tree. And you're like, I mean, how easy is that? I never would have done that. The only problem is Romans 5 tells us, no, actually we would have. Actually, if you were there, you would have done that. Well, what about the cross? I'm sure sometimes we've thought to ourselves on Holy Week. Yeah, I never would have been the person like praising Jesus on Palm Sunday and then asking for his crucifixion on Thursday. Except that doesn't our Bible tell us that our own sin is what put Jesus on the cross? You see, friends... The bad news is we really are that sinful. We really are. Our hearts are really that evil. The minute we say, oh, I will never do fill in the blank. Give us a couple years or a couple weeks or a couple days. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our heart. That's the bad news, the good news, the good news. And this is what Peter is trying to show. The good news is that there was a plan. There was a plan for our sinfulness. And the plan was Jesus crucified. The plan was that Jesus would pay the price. The plan was that Jesus would be our Savior. And so don't you see, friends, we need this Savior every day at the center of our lives. We can't even go a few hours without Sinning without committing the I would never and then doing it. We need that, that Savior at the center of our lives every day. Peter goes on in verses 24 through 35. He says, this Jesus resurrected and exalted. You see in verse 32, he says, this Jesus, God raised up. Two things I want us to notice As Peter begins this part of his sermon, I first want you to notice that the most verses, the most words are committed to the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Twelve verses here committed to that. 
This is important. This is the, the meat, the center of, of Peter's preaching that day. It's the center of the preaching of the church. It's the message of the church. The other thing I want you to notice is that twice here in these uh, 12 verses, Peter takes them again to their Old Testament, to their Bibles. He's already said, hey, turn with me to Joel. And he goes to Joel and he says, hey, this, this Holy Spirit thing you're seeing, this is what you saw in Joel. Now he goes, hey, I want you to turn to Psalm 16. And I want you to look at that. And I want you to see something in Psalm 16. Oh, and then I want you to turn to Psalm 110. And I want you to see something there. So let's us turn there for a few moments. Turn to, I mean, thinking to Psalm 16, he quotes it right here. You actually don't need to turn it because it's printed here, right here by, printed here for you in your Bibles because Luke put it into the text. Psalm 16, it's an amazing psalm. It's such an encouraging psalm. When we start our summer series next Sunday night, we're going to start by looking at Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, written by David, David in verse 10 says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And then Peter says to this audience on the day of Pentecost, do you understand this couldn't ultimately be about David? But because David, was, he died and he's buried and we have his tomb over here. What he's saying, Peter says, is that David was prophesying a thousand years ago about the resurrection of the Messiah, the resurrection of Jesus. So this was the plan all along. And now you can see it that Jesus not only would go to the cross through a plan, but he would be resurrected. And we can see it in our Bibles. This is where it is. And then he says, I want you to, to think about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is an amazing psalm. It's only seven verses long. And yet it is quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm. Some, some scholars have said that Psalm 110 is the high moment of the book of Psalms. All 150 Psalms, Psalm 110 is the high moment. I think it was D.A. Carson, great scholar, said, Psalm 110 is the key that unlocks your Bible. An amazing psalm. So it makes sense that Peter would go there and hear. He says, listen, David was prophesying about the exaltation of Christ, about the ascension of Christ. Because David said... The Lord, that's God, said to my Lord, to David's Lord. So who was David's Lord? It's Jesus who's going to sit at the right hand of God, ascended there. You see, friends, the central miracle of all of human history, the central miracle of everything we know in the universe, the central miracle is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And either it's false Either it's false, and if it is, if it's false, if it didn't happen, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we who are sitting here in this room are to be more pitied than anybody else. And that makes sense. If you and I are only counting on something from Jesus in this life, and there's no thought of a resurrection or a life after, then yeah, we should be more pitied than anyone else. If we're only here this morning to get some encouraging words from Jesus to help us live this next week, and that's all we're counting on, then yeah, when people say, hey, you know what, Christianity, it's just a crutch for weak people. If, that, if that's what's happening, they're right. If there is no resurrection and there is no ascension, then they're right. 
people should make fun of us. We're silly. But if it's true, and friends, it is true, that Jesus Christ is risen and ascended to heaven, then it would make sense. In fact, it only makes sense that he is the very center of our lives, the center of our relationships, the center of our decisions, the center of our vocation, the center of our finances, of our homes, of everything that we're about. The very center of it would have to be Christ if he is the risen and ascended Lord, exalted on high. Which brings us to Peter's conclusion in verse 36. When Peter says, this Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's already said, this Jesus, a man attested, endorsed by God. You saw his works. You saw the miracles. You saw what happens. This Jesus who is delivered up to the cross by God's plan. That was his plan in order to save you. This Jesus has been resurrected. He's not in the tomb anymore. He is alive. This Jesus has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God because he is part of the Godhead, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All this has been done by God. And so Peter says to all those people, do you see it? Do you see it? This Jesus is Lord and Christ. He is King and Messiah. He is God and he is Savior. What happens what happens in that moment? We see there in verse 37. I love this. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. By the grace of God, they felt the pain of conviction. It hurt. The truth hurt. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter says, oh, I got good news for you. I got good news for you. You can repent you can go to this Jesus. You can confess your sins and you can turn from the direction you're going and you can head in another direction. You can be baptized. You can identify with the body of Christ. Identify with the family of God. Identify with this Jesus publicly and say, no, Jesus is going to be my Lord. And in all of that, you are going to receive the forgiveness of all your sin. You're going to be forgiven. And you're going to receive as a gift the presence of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that you see in all of us, the 120 who were there with the tongues of fire and speak, that same Holy Spirit is going to be given to you. And there were 3,000 that said, please, please, I want that. Please forgive me, I repent. Please receive me. Please, Jesus, I want you at the center of my life. What about us today? What do we need most? Well, whether you've never ever put your faith in Christ or whether you put your faith in Christ decades ago, what all of us in here need most is Jesus, Lord and Christ at the very center of our lives. That's what we need. That's what we need. Is he in that place today? Is he in that place in your life? If not, and this is the first time you've ever thought of that question, this is the first time you've ever felt the pain of that conviction, the first time you've ever been cut to the heart, 
then you today can receive Christ. You can cry out and say, please, I, I confess my sin of, of not even knowing you and knowing who you are, and I, I want to come to you. Or, if this is the hundredth time you've looked at your life and you've gone, somehow Jesus isn't at the center right now. Maybe you came to know Christ decades ago, and right now this morning you'd say, yeah, I've wandered. I have other affections at the center of my life. I have other values at the center of my life. I have other priorities at the center of my life. I don't today have Jesus, Lord and Christ, at the center of my life. You too, same prayer. It's the same prayer. Jesus, please forgive me. Please, I'm here. I want to repent. I want to come back. And Jesus will say, I forgive you. I receive you. I love you. I will put my spirit in you. This Jesus. This Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the truth and the power of your word. We thank you that you reveal your heart through your word. That we are blessed to even hold it in our hands. Father, on this Ascension Sunday, we, we do. We, we want you at the very center of our lives. And Lord, we are. We would confess with the hymnist, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. So Father, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, we come back and say, Jesus, receive me. We desire this, Father, because we want to lift high the name of Jesus. We want that to be what our lives are about. That you at the very center, Lord, would cause our lives to be a, 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 a proclamation of the, the beauty of Christ, of the glory of Christ. That with our words and our actions, we would lift high the name of Jesus in our homes. That you, Father, would help us to lift high the name of Jesus in our neighborhoods. That we could lift high the name of Jesus in this city. Oh, Father, the, the hurt and the brokenness and pain in this city. Oh, this Jesus is what they need. Help us to lift high your name. And in this world, in this country, Heavenly Father, that you might, by your grace, through us, lift high the name of Jesus. This Jesus, Lord and Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.